Hello, and welcome to Previously Unknown, a podcast from Independent 20th Century that reframes and reevaluates what we think we know about contemporary art. We are pleased to welcome two very special guests to talk about a rapidly and in some cases radically shifting area in art, and that's the future of artists' archives and legacies. Lisa Darms is executive director of Hauser & Wirth Institute, and John Tain is head of research at Asia Art Archive. Hauser & Wirth Institute is a nonprofit exhibitor at Independent 20th Century this year and has recently funded and supported a major project to further the legacy of Zohor Oolak with Asia Art Archives. Lisa and John are ideal guests to discuss the future of this field, and in a wide-ranging conversation, they covered making archives accessible, maintaining papers in their communities, and preserving the original order of a collection. We hope you enjoy today's show. Hi, John. Hi, Lisa. I am really excited you were able to join us. It's uh, about 9 o'clock here in Manhattan, and I think you're about 12 hours ahead of us in Hong Kong. Is that right? Yeah, so it's 9 o'clock here, too. Great. <laughs> Just, uh, at night. So that'll be a really fun, interesting conversation. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about archives, uh, the way our two organizations kind of coalesce and relate to each other, and particularly about the artist that we are choosing to exhibit this year at Independent. Yeah. So in 2021, my organization, Hauser & Wirth Institute, awarded a grant to your organization, Asia Art Archive, to digitize the archives of Pakistani artist Sahur ul Aklak. And I understand that that project is now near completion. And as I said, Sahur's is one of the two archives that we're going to exhibit at this year's Independent 20th Century. Um, so but before we get to talking about Sahur as an artist and his archive, I thought it would be great if you could sort of tell us a bit more about Asia Art Archive and um, how the organization was formed and what its mission is. Uh, yeah, sure. So basically, Asia Art Archive was founded in 2000 by three individuals based in Hong Kong, uh, one of whom, Claire Sue, had been a student at the SOAS, a school for Oriental and African Studies in London, and wanted to do work looking at contemporary art of China. And even though she was at what was supposed to be the premier institution for people who are interested in the culture of Asia and Africa, uh, she realized that the school had, the library, school library had no resources for contemporary, for thinking about contemporary culture in Asia or in China. And so it was out of that experience and the absence of the contemporary or the modern at the school that motivated her to work with the other two co-founders to establish Asia Art Archive as a, as a place where people who were interested in researching and understanding Asia as not just a kind of like a historical or traditional entity, but also as very much living in the present, they would be able to find the resources for doing so there. So, you know, shortly after it was founded, it began to collect books. And so at this point, what started off being one single shelf of books is now about 50,000 volumes, including monographs and exhibition catalogs and periodicals from different parts of Asia, uh, some of them very rare. And then the part that 
is more what I'm involved in is the archive part, the archive of Asia Art Archive. And that is something that has actually had an interesting history because, you know, I think the, the understanding of how to archive the contemporary was something that I think the trajectory of AA reflects the evolution in thinking. So when the organization was founded, it existed to archive the contemporary. And so it was doing the work of collecting materials itself. So, you know, not just the library, but also making clippings of newspaper articles and uh, art critiques, art criticism, you know, from different parts of Asia, gathering ephemera from exhibitions, taking photographs at exhibitions, and so documenting things as they were happening. And it was only about 10 years into the organization's history that it started thinking about transitioning and becoming less an organization that was documenting the present as it was happening to one that was working with other uh, individuals and sometimes organizations to preserve their archives. So in that sense, you know, um, maybe more like um, some of the uh, other pure institutions and organizations that a finds itself among. So one of the really, I think, great aspects of your program is that this model of processing, digitizing archives, I, I call it in the field. Mm. So I think primarily um, you're going into communities where archives are, um, doing processing, digitization, and then in many cases, the archive stays with the community or, or the person who created it. And then you make those materials available online for everybody. Yeah. And that, you know, that is, that is a fairly new model. It's a model that archivists are more and more turning towards. We call it sort of non-custodial or post-custodial collecting so that rather than focusing on kind of hoarding in all of these collections into a single repository where they're physically stored and people physically have to come look at them. Yeah. You know, the materials both get to stay in their communities and are more radically accessible. Uh, and I've always admired your institution for like how well you do that. Do you not know much about how that decision was made to to operate like that? To transition, you mean from? Uh, yeah. Well, I got yeah to go from being an institution primarily concerned with documenting Asia and art, contemporary art of Asia, to work when working with other people's archives. But also specifically, the decision not to actually collect those, yeah, and bring them into the library as physical collections. Yeah. Well, I think that partly has to do with pragmatic reasons. There are very kind of like simple reasons for that, that are not necessarily theoretical or kind of, you know, um, philosophical. One of them having to do with the high price of real estate in Hong Kong. And so, you know, Asia Art Archive is an independent organization that receives most of its funding from or a good part of its funding anyway, from an annual fundraiser through the generosity of individuals. And that means that, you know, and as an organization, we pay rent on our space. And so that means that, you know, we only have so much space that we can afford to, to rent or to, to have. And so, you know, we're not like the Archives of American Art, for instance, that has a giant kind of, you know, a space or, you know, can, can get like a warehouse space for over, overrun. And so the decision, I think, was always 
to keep the archive part of it relatively contained,、mm-hmm. uh, and even the library is, you know, relatively contained in terms of how much space it actually takes up. I mean, you know, like we would fit into the back pocket, I think, of most American、mm-hmm. institutions, just because you know Hong Kong real estate is so expensive. That said, I think there were also other considerations in the decision to, you know, when A did decide to to move into working with other people's archives, to to do it digitally, and one of them has to do with not just kind of storage issues, but also accessibility issues, and this is very simply like Asia is a very big continent. And we can't assume that everyone will, who needs to consult material would necessarily have the ability to come to Hong Kong to be able to consult the material. And so, you know, I think at the time, right around the time that AAA made the decision to start working with People's Archives,、uh, it happened also to be around that time. I think that you know the internet really. I mean, it had been around, you know, when AO was founded, but I don't think it was quite the same thing that it is, you know, or has become, you know, in the last ten, fifteen, twenty years, where there's so much more information that is available on it, and you know, where I think there's been a kind of a real sea change in the way that people think about and conceive of archives. You know, I think it's now very commonplace to think of archives as living online. Mm-hmm. But I think that you know when even when AA was founded, it still wasn't quite such a, a a norm to to think that an archive could be something that you could access online. You know, like at that point in time, people were still using modems to connect, right? So it wouldn't、mm-hmm. have been so feasible to to work with the that kind of technology. Oh, then not only that, there was pushback, and I was even myself part of that pushback, thinking you know you could never have the true encounter with an archival object remotely or virtually. Um, yeah. You got so much more about the material information if you were able to access it in person, but now I see all of those as you know not either ors or but you know yes and you know so、yeah. obviously there's huge benefits digitization and accessibility online, and it's also、yeah. cool if you can to see things in person. I, I, you know, this conversation is making me think it might be good for us to actually talk a bit more about how we define archives or at least the archives、yeah. we're working with because、mm-hmm. you know. As we know in our field, it's a word that's used to mean many different things to different people, and in different fields means different things. And I think we're both talking about a specific type of archive in in both of our operations. Can you talk a bit about how you define or give some examples of what the archives are comprised of? Yeah. So Asia Archive, you know,、um, at this point in time, has as far as the archive part of it goes. Is really focused on working with existing repositories of information that have been assembled by other entities, usually other artists,、um, but sometimes it can be a collective.、Uh, sometimes it can be a critic. Sometimes it can be a scholar or a curator. And so, what the organization endeavors to do is to really kind of work with. The entire repository of material and documents, and to digitize that and make that available. Now, in the case of an artist, this can include things like writings and letters and drawings and notebooks and sketchbooks. 
um, as well as photographic documentation of their artwork. It can include photography of their um, exhibitions. It can include ephemera of their own exhibitions and also, you know, anything that they collect from their friends, right? So what the archive does or what the archive is, is a set of documents that allows for the contextualization, understanding the context and the lighter network of relationships that I think, you know, the, the individual or the entity, the space, you know, is part of. In that sense, I think that's one way of thinking about the archive that we have. Whereas uh, a museum can have an, a collection and the collection will be of distinct individuals, the archives that AA has, for instance, are never distinct. There's always overlaps between them. So, you know, one archive will have work by another or something from another artist in the archive because they corresponded or they visited, you know, the other person's exhibition, or they got sent an invitation from another artist. So, you know, it, it basically is about porousness and about kind of like lines all over the place in and Relationships. out, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's really well, well said. And I think that people used to working primarily with artworks think, you know, naturally about discrete objects. Obviously not all artworks are discrete objects, but there's a way of thinking about the object. And yeah. our archives are really sets of relationships and contextual materials that kind of form a universe on their own. Yeah. And then that each universe of an archive then forms a larger universe with those other archives that are part of their community, i.e. part of the larger collection. And I think that's what makes them really exciting and I think another thing that's often people don't understand is just the the size of these collections. I know we talked a little bit about how, how the collections tend to be a bit smaller in Asia. Um, but in my experience uh, as a past curator of archives, you know, I would work with artist archives that were on average 35 to 75 boxes of material, depending on their age and their practices. And that's, you know, sometimes thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of documents. So you have to think about it a little differently than uh, a registrar might think about an artwork. Yeah. I was just going to say that, yeah, it's, it's partly about the context, like in terms of the, the intellectual content. But I think partly, you know, the one thing you were saying that earlier, there's lots of different meanings or ways that mm. the word archive gets used. And I've noticed that, you know, artists have a tendency to sometimes use it very freely in the sense that, you know, or even institutions, like you can see, like, you know, they'll call or galleries, they'll say, oh, we're looking for an archivist, but really they're looking for someone who's like a registrar, you know, who basically is just mm -hmm. like cataloging the material, right? Um, the artwork in, that they're responsible for. And on the one hand, it kind of makes me cringe. It's totally cringe to like hear, you know, a gallery say, oh, we need an archivist or an artist saying like, I want an archivist to like basically catalog my work um, because that's not what it is. But on the other hand, um, it kind of is in the sense that the archive is not just the set of documents. It's also the logic by which, you know, those thousands, potentially thousands and thousands of materials um, become something that actually is usable. Mm -hmm. And not just like a pile or a heap of stuff, you know? Yeah. The, I mean, the guiding principle, you know, for professional archivists is original order. Yeah. And so many times uh, an artist or an estate will approach me and say, how should I organize these materials? And I usually say, don't, please. 
<laughs> because what we're mm-hmm. interested in is how the the painter, the artist, the, the performer, the writer, you know, arrange their own archives. There's so much information in that, in the context of how things were put together in, in, and so that's something that's really important. You're, you're preserving that as well as the items within the archive. Yeah. That's the theory, I guess, is you want to preserve the original order. But for me, one of the really interesting things that I learned when I began to work with archives, not just as a researcher, but as someone who was responsible for making archives available to other researchers, was just how much work went into actually turning what gets picked up at the beginning of the process into something that people can actually use at the end of the process, you know? Totally. And like... I mean, I think there's a romance that historians, you know, work with primary source documents and, you know, they scour things and they find, but really, mm-hmm. I think most historians, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to do half the, at least half the work they do if there weren't people, archivists who were there That's to so kind true. of. <laughs> there's so many articles like historian discovers blah, blah, blah. And I always think, yeah. well, <laughs> yeah. And you know, that is, that's one of the reasons that my organization's so focused on trying to like elevate and make more apparent the labor that goes into archives. And I think why so many of our other grants have gone to staffing. Um, you know, it's not glamorous, but it's really important to, to recognize like the work and the resources yeah. that are needed to make these available to everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I'd be really interested in hearing more about why this particular archive that mm-hmm. we funded um, and that you've completed with First Zahor Al Aklak. Why, why was this per- particular collection so important to you, to such a priority to get processed and digitized? Yeah. So first of all, thank you very much, uh, Lisa and <laughs> Hausenworth Institute for supporting the digitization of, uh, of this collection. It had been something that, you know, had been kind of um, at the back of my mind or just kind of somewhere in the, in the kind of as a party, but not something that we necessarily you know, had um, immediate ability to take care of. You know, how it came about was this. So so for those, uh, for our listeners who aren't necessarily so familiar with Zohor, uh, Zohor Aklak was an artist who was one of those really foundational trans- and transitional figures in the history of 20th century art of Pakistan. And, you know, he was born in 19, in the 1940s. And studied was the first class at what was then the kind of the new, you know, post-independence, post-colonial Pakistan at the National College of Arts. And he became one of the kind of, you know, representatives of modernism in Pakistan. And if that was all he had had been, then, you know, maybe he wouldn't be quite so prominent as he is today. What um, happened, though, was that while he was... um studying in London, actually, he became interested in the collection of Mughal miniatures, Indian miniature painting that, you know, is actually, even though it's from South Asia, from India, it's not necessarily so common because so many of the miniatures were uh, taken away during the colonial period. And so the British Library and the British Museum actually have great collections. And so while he was, you know, studying abroad, 
he was able to have access to the collections there. And he learned a lot about these miniature paintings that he could see in the original. And a result of that was he then began to really think about modernism in a different way um, that allowed him to kind of, you know, that led him down a path of thinking about how um, to create a particular form of modernism that would integrate the artistic traditions of South Asia, of Pakistan itself. And so when he returned to Pakistan and became a professor at the National College of Arts, that's kind of how he approached his teaching. And <clears throat> he was actually instrumental in the founding or the kind of revitalization of the teaching of miniature painting at the NCA school. And so it was, in some ways, as a result of his work on behalf of miniature painting, which is not something he did himself. You know, he was not a miniaturist. He was a, a, very much a kind of a modernist painter who was interested in abstract expressionism, yeah, as, as you see in the exhibition, you know. And he's interested in kind of contemporary art, but he was very kind of respectful and kind of appreciated the kind of the, the legacy or the heritage, right? And so because of that, the NCA miniature painting department went from something that, you know, had been kind of like a intellectual artistic backwater into something that was the place where Shazia Sikander and Imran Qureshi and other artists who became very well known as contemporary artists of Pakistan, the kind of the, the real first generation of, you know, what we think of as the contemporary artists of Pakistan, they came out of this program. And so he was really kind of instrumental in that transition from the modern to the contemporary. And a contemporary that was very particular to Pakistan, that was in some ways very, you know, very informed by the local traditions. And so it seemed like, you know, he was uh, a figure that deserved a lot of attention. But at the same time, uh, he died very prematurely and uh, tragically in 1999. And in the two decades since his death, the archives had not been available. His family had wanted to, you know, um, make them available, but they never quite had the means or the, you know, the resources to, to do so. And so actually a few years before uh, you and I talked about, you know, a possible project, you know, I had spoken with his daughter, Nur Jahan, and she had received a small amount of funding to learn about archiving and so reached out to, to Asia Art Archive, you know, for basically uh, so that she could visit us in Hong Kong and get some, you know, training. And then the because of the pandemic, she she wasn't able to come, but we, we gave her kind of online training. But, you know, at that point in time, she was thinking that that was something she wanted to do on her own. And that's kind of where it stopped. And so when you brought up the possibility of Hauser and Worth Institute being able to fund a project, you know, I immediately thought of this one because it was someone whose archive seems so obvious as a candidate for support, which, you know, would never get it in, in Pakistan. You know, that's the, that's the paradox. It's like, you know, we're not talking about an obscure figure. We're not talking about someone who needs to be discovered, but he does because like the archive just hasn't really been available. Right. Even if someone has had a really important career and has been well known, if their archive isn't sort of cared for and, and made available, it can sort of help them to disappear a bit from awareness. 
or things just kind of harden, you know, into like these, yes, like exactly old stories, you know. Anecdotes. I think that's a really, really important point, and something I talk about a lot is sure we may know things about an artist, but they're just this sort of solidified one-liners that get perpetuated over and over again and sometimes aren't even accurate. Whereas when you delve into an archive, you often find, obviously, it's much more richer, it's more nuanced, and often there's things in there that tell you that the, the known stories aren't even true. So obviously super important. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm curious about and really interested in is and it's very actually hot topic in the archival profession in general is sort of the effective qualities or aspects of working with archives. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just mean, you know, the, the emotional aspects and the sort of relationships that form between all sorts of parties involved in archival care. And, yeah. and so I was just wondering if you would be willing to talk a bit about how that played out with this particular collection, because I know, this archive was processed and cataloged at a period of time that was fairly challenging for Pakistan and and also um, perhaps for the family. Um, yeah. Is that something you'd want to talk about? Yeah, I can say a little about the context, you know, that we were doing the work. So, number one, it was the pandemic. And so, you know, it would have been very difficult for anyone from Asia Art Archive itself to visit Pakistan. Noor Jahan... Uh, Zahor Akhlaq's daughter happened to be there because she was caring for her mother, Zahor's widow, who was uh, suffering from various maladies and who eventually passed away during the time that we were working on the archive. It was, you know, in terms of the the family, the artist's family, it was a, a particularly difficult moment for them. But to Nur Jahan's credit, uh, she was very supportive of the project going on despite the difficulties that she was experiencing, you know, taking care of her mother. But despite that, there, it would still was very difficult because there were times when we just would not, you know, or the team that we found to work on the, um, the archive in Pakistan, in Lahore, you know, wouldn't necessarily be able to be there or just would need to take a break just because, you know, there are other so many things going on. And on top of this, you know, there was really runaway inflation that was hitting Pakistan. There was political turmoil. Uh, last summer, there was the flooding that affected the southern part of the country. It didn't directly affect Lahore, but I think it just meant that there was a lot of challenges to to keeping things going. But the team was really able to, you know, kind of set some goals and and meet them. And so for that, we're we're eternally grateful to them. And also to to Nur Jahan, I think, for, you know, for being able to just keep things going for us and help us, you know, letting us continue working on it and uh, helping as best as she could. So that was, you know, the kind of the effective, um, as we were doing this, as we in Hong Kong were still, you know, dealing with the pandemic and, you know, Hong Kong itself, like having fairly restrictive travel, uh, restrictions. It just meant that it was the, you know, that affective or, you know, experiential dimension was in some ways very strange because it was something that I was witnessing kind of at a distance or just hearing about, you know, but it is something that is very, very much part of working with archives, you know, like, I mean, I mean, I'm sure you can say a lot about this as well. But you know, I mean, 
a person's archive or an institution's archive even is not just like a set of, you know, documents and facts. It's also a lot of um, an investment of of energy and it's a kind of reflection of their sense of worth. And there's often so much like that's loaded in that, you know, like people, I mean, these conversations about archives and whether or not people are ready, like, you know, sometimes it's it's as much a psychological kind of like, process that people have to go through and they have to be willing to kind of let go, you know, like, mm -hmm. or be ready to let other people in. Absolutely. It's a very unusual kind of relationship. And I should point out that in the 2010s, you and I both had similar positions. Um, you were at the Getty Research Institute as a curator, and I was at NYU's Fales Library and Special Collections as an archivist and curator of collections. And so uh, I know we were both meeting a lot of artists or families of artists who had passed in their homes or storage units. Yeah. And it's just a very um, intense and intimate kind of relationship to be there as this stranger with people as they kind of reckon with either their own mortality as they're getting older and ready to maybe donate their archive or with um, the loss of someone um, like Nur Jahan with her father yeah. And then, as you say, sometimes not being ready, which I know I've worked for years, sometimes years with someone before they were ready to let go of yeah. their archive. And it's not only the relationships between the, the curators and the families and et cetera. It's also the relationship of the people who are then eventually accessing the materials, you know. So yeah. I've definitely seen when I ran a reading room at NYU, people sitting in the quiet reading room crying as they read David Wanarovich's journals or... yeah. You know, and I think there's something really unusual about the intimate quality of archives and the the fact that we as strangers are allowed into them mm -hmm. to ex experience this person kind of at the core of their life. Absolutely. It's one of the things about archives that is very special. Like in some ways, people make artwork knowing that it's very likely to be something that other people will experience and see. And so they're kind of ready for that. But people don't always keep documents related to their life or, you know, like, because they think, you know, they're because they're narcissists and think other people <laughs> are going to be looking at it, you know, like 50 years down the road. Sometimes they're, they just keep it because, you know, they don't throw things away or, you know, or whatever. And, and so when another set of eyes looks at it, it may have been something very, very private that wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, necessarily meant for anyone else to see. So it is, it is a very particular act to be willing to share that mm -hmm. with the outside world, you know? Yeah. And as you say, so many of the artists I've worked with are not artists who had an expectation of fame or became widely known. So yeah. again, that changes how you think of your archive. I had, I worked with one writer who said, Oh, I always knew my journals would be widely read and admired <laughs> <laughs> from the time I was a teenager. I, I don't need to name him. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, most of the women that I worked with had never thought such a thing. They thought of their journal as pretty much a conversation between themselves and themselves. Yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's just a really interesting thing for us to negotiate as people who are kind of mediating and advising people on how much they want to share and also of other people's materials, because what some people don't really think through is that 
the letters that were sent become part of that person's archive. So most 20th century archives will be filled with letters and now later emails from other people. So then all those other people's private thoughts are potentially available to the public as well. And thanks to the um, particularities of U.S. copyright law, I think, you know, it means people can actually access those letters. I mean, I remember uh, finding out that in France, before you can look at a letter in an, in one person's archive, you have to get permission from the writer's estate. So it was mm-hmm. like it was like this double process where you can't get permission to look at the archive itself, but then to when it came to the letters, you had to get permission from the writer <laughs> to, oh, to wow. do it. Yeah, which is like really you know like on the one hand it protects privacy, but on the other hand it means that there's real blockages to you know having that intellectual, that discourse enter into, you know, wider knowledge. Mm -hmm. Especially if it's controlled by a single source. Yeah. And they have their own motivations for controlling it. Yeah. But, you know, on that note, I was wondering if you could talk a little about, you know, because so, you know, the... So the exhibition that we've been working on uh, is not just Zahor Aklak, but also Mary Dill Henry. And I was wondering if you could talk a little about what it's been like to work with her archive. And, you know, you were saying earlier in terms of, you know, the sense of um, the expectation that a public would look at an archive sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like, did you get a sense of how she, how she was addressing the materials that you found or? Yeah. uh, Well, so that archive, you know, we we kind of have two programs that we administer archivally. Mm -hmm. And one is the one that you benefit from, which is our grants to organizations. And it's the more, the larger program. We also have a program where we will uh, process and selectively digitize collections in our in-house facility with our trained archivists and then um, help place those archives at collecting institutions or if it's an organization's archives and they have a reference program, it could go back to the organization. So Mary Dill Henry's collection was part of that. And so we fully processed it, and it's now at the Illinois Institute of Technology, which is where she went to school. Mm. And so, you know, I have worked with a lot of of artists' archives, and this one was a little um, unusual, although this does happen, where it felt more like it was a collection that had been assembled posthumously. Uh, It didn't actually have, it had very little personal materials in it. Mm -hmm. So it was more um, her student thesis and photographs from when she was at the new Bauhaus at what is now IIT. Mm-hmm. Um, some photographs of her commercial work. And so to me, that's really interesting, you know, that in terms of negotiating what would be comfortable or uncomfortable to exhibit, it pretty much all has a, a feeling that it's something that could have existed in the public realm already. Mm. So I'm saying, you know, and I speculate about why that is. Was it intentional? Some people are very withholding of the anything they see personal and have a view of their career as something that's aside from that. Again, from most of the art- artists I've worked with yeah. uh, who are feminist or queer, that's not the case. Yeah. But I think, nevertheless, it's it's going to be a really great counterpoint to Zohora Aklak. You know, I, I don't want to force equivalencies because they're very, very different artists. But I think they both have interests in kind of the flatness of the picture plane and also in, in very different ways you know, Zahor has this relationship with kind of vernacular and folk cultures. Yeah. And um, 
Mary Dill Henry coming from the Bauhaus and very, very influenced by Mahola Naja has obviously this incredible relationship to craft yeah. and there being no separation between that yeah. and art making. And so it's kind of fun to, to see where the similarities lie as you look at the materials and the vitrines and obviously the differences as well. And so yeah. I really hope, you know, that fair goers will also um, enjoy looking at these materials and, and that that will give us an opportunity to really kind of return to where we started in this conversation in terms of like, well, what is an archive mm -hmm. and what can an archive do and how does having the archive accessible to the public change what we think we know about an artist? I guess something that you spoke about at the beginning of this conversation that I wanted to come back to was this idea of Asia Art Archive really mm -hmm. trying to fill in the gap of the lack of focus on the modern and the contemporary. Mm -hmm. And it's always been so interesting as an archivist to think about how we can focus on the contemporary and also the future while also being very concerned with preserving the past. Mm. Um, so this is getting a little abstract, but I just think it's a very interesting tension in the work that we do. We want to be forward thinking we're both working for very progressive organizations um, that kind of want to redress the mistakes and the aberrations of the past. But mm. at the same time, we know that preserving these materials is is really important. It's like we're, we're always kind of looking in three <laughs> directions at once. Does that something that resonates with you and your work? Definitely. I think that, you know, uh, certainly at Asia Art Archive, you know, the goal has always been to make the less, give visibility to that which is less visible, you know. And so at the time that AA was founded, there was very much the sense that even though, you know, contemporary art was becoming very much a kind of like a, a phenomena in Asia, and there was a lot of interest in certainly Chinese artists who had come up uh, since the 1980s, you know, after the kind of the, the opening up of China. And other parts of Asia were also likewise receiving, you know, more attention in a globalized art world. Um, there was still the sense that there wasn't equal weight or equal access. And so, you know, that was, I think, you know, the, the implicit thinking behind AA was that there needed to be resources put into to making that, you know, not just kind of, you know, in the gallery, Asian art being available in the gallery or on view, but also for the research to be supported so that people would be able to, you know, to understand it with knowledge. And so that's something that, you know, was a project for the future, right? For the present and for the future by, by preserving the present at that point in time, right? I think it has evolved so that, you know, there is more of a sense that the, the past also needs or the immediate past also needs to be preserved. Mm. In that sense, like, I feel like it, it probably is very similar to what you were working on when you were at the fails in the sense that, you know, like you were working with like, you know, the downtown scene in New York and, it, you know, that was like very immediate. It wasn't like that long ago, you know, and mm -hmm. some of it was still happening, right? So. Well, even more than that, when I started the yeah. Riot Girl collection there, um, those were my peers. Yeah. People I knew, people who were then in their early 40s sometimes. So it's just a very strange, you know, it's almost like the past has kept, sort of, has sort of, the past has like caught up with you. Yeah. And you're supposedly a historian, but the materials you're working on are from your own life. 
yeah. um, which is a very unusual. And now I think we're kind of moving beyond that and into the future, you know, and I think one example of that is there's been so many communities and people who have not been documented. Mm-hmm. And one way to kind of correct for that if the archival materials don't exist is to do oral histories. And I think that's why we're seeing more and more oral histories as a way to, you know, correct these oversights and, and you know, more than oversights, excisions from history. Yeah, one thing I, I you know, so I think that that's interesting in the sense that you're pointing out that Hausenworth Institute and other archival archives uh, oriented organizations are also thinking about, you know, how to preserve histories that haven't been written, that haven't been preserved, right? And oral histories mm-hmm. being a way of, of doing so. I think that that will, that's especially crucial in parts of the world where I think, you know, like, there is no expectation that there's any organization or any institution that's mm-hmm. there that's going to be able to preserve that. And so I think that, you know, um, yeah, I think that's going to change a lot of what kind of histories can be written. I mean, you know, earlier we were talking about his, how historians really work with something that is kind of like um, prepared for them. And it's interesting to think about, you know, how archivists and archive oriented organizations are are in themselves like you know thinking about his, the relationship of time right like you know between the past and the present and the future and have their own kind of like ways of thinking about these things so it's interesting hearing you you know hearing your thoughts about this i think it's not necessarily a conversation you know we have with our or with my colleagues anyway we don't like sit around talking about like you know the temporality of the work that we do but yeah. Well, I, th- I think we're all too wild- wildly busy <laughs> because <laughs> as my organization is trying to point out, there's just not enough resources for this kind of work. Yeah. And um, what one thing we're trying to do is just bring more awareness to that and, and perhaps other philanthropists will start stepping in and, and funding work like what you do and um, processing and staffing for archives. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, so this is probably a, a good place to wrap up. I just want to thank you so much for, well, not only talking to me um, 12 hours ahead in Hong Kong, but also for the um, work you did on this collection to, to bring it to the world. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's been fun talking with you. And thank you so much again to, to you and to Hausner Worth Institute for supporting this project and, and Asia Art Archive. Thanks, yeah. John. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Previously Unknown, a podcast produced by Independent New York. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to support the show, you can visit our website, independenthq.com, or find us on Instagram at independenthq.